We're going to start this podcast with a thought experiment. Listen closely. What color are you thinking of right now? If the answer is red, you know the power of iconic brands. That's what we're here to talk about this morning. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin from Continuum. So I was staring at the logo for Target the other day, and it occurred to me that it's a pretty impressive creation. It's really just a red circle with a red dot. It's so simple, and yet it evokes perfectly in my mind a whole bunch of feelings and adjectives and associations that I have about Target stores and and what it's like to shop there. Now, is Target just lucky that I feel that way? Nope. Turns out companies like Target have to work really hard to become that iconic in our minds. And it turns out that people study this phenomenon, how different companies can become more prominent in the public imagination. It's not necessarily about having the prettiest logo, but you know you're doing it right when someone glances at your logo and immediately sees what you're all about. Our guest on today's edition of The Resonance Test is Soon Yu, an international speaker and author on innovation and design. And Soon is writing a book called Iconic Advantage, which urges businesses both large and small to focus their innovation priorities on building greater iconicity. He was most recently the Global VP of Innovation and Officer at VF Corporation, which is the parent organization to over 30 global apparel companies like the North Face, Timberland, and Nautica. So he knows a thing or two about iconic brands. Soon came by the office for an early morning caffeine blast with Toby Bottorf, VP of Service and Experience Design here at Continuum, to riff on the qualities that make certain brands so iconic. Hi, Soon. Good to hey, see you today. Hey, good morning. Hi. Um, I brought and I'm wearing, listeners can't see, but um, shoes that are iconic to me. I've been wearing these Adidas Samba sneakers uh, for two-thirds of my life. Um, I have an irrational attachment to these shoes since I was a teenager. What's going on there? Well, I'm certain that uh, you have memories that are associated with uh, wearing those sneakers. Um, like all iconic products, um, there's something distinctive that you probably like about it, whether it's the look, um, whether it's the feel, uh, whether it's how you make makes you feel. And whatever that distinctiveness is, it's relevant to you. Okay, And some of that relevance is uh, born out of the nostalgia you have with it. Some of the relevance is it how it makes you look and therefore how you want others to uh, sort of perceive you or view you, like you're probably kind of cool, you're not wearing you know, any wingtips, you know, that's kind of your persona. And then uh, obviously there's also this element that when people see it, there's sort of this universal recognition that it's pretty cool. You're wearing some cool shoes. All those elements add to the idea of why you might like it. So you hit on uh, a few things that are in your new book, Iconic Advantage. By the way, thank you for the Coke. First thing in the morning, this is exactly (laughs) what I need. Breakfast of champions. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Love it. This vintage is good. Mm. All right. Uh, so the answer to that question, Coke, not Pepsi. Absolutely. So got it right. <laughs> so uh, in your book, you talk about um, three elements to an iconic advantage. You just mentioned them with regard to my uh, favorite sneakers. Uh, noticing power, staying power, and scaling power. Can you talk about um, some brands that you feel embody those three attributes for you? Sure. So... Let's sort of back up. Why would you want to focus on noticing power, staying power, and scaling power? And it has to do with, you know, we did research over with over 50 companies that were sort of managing their iconic franchises very well. And when we, when we looked across those 50, 
what we found is there are three qualities that make a product iconic. And the first one being something distinctive, just like we were talking about with your shoes. Um, and the second quality is whatever that distinctive element is, it's relevant to the audience. Okay, so there's a high degree of relevance for that distinction. And lastly, in order to become iconic for your audience, you're universally recognized for that distinctive relevance. And that's it. And so when you want to sort of supercharge those three elements, you want to focus on noticing power to create distinction, staying power to build relevance. The idea there isn't just sort of relevance for the moment, but timeless relevance. Mm. And then the last one is obviously getting as many people to understand and see and view that uh, distinctive relevance, and therefore you want to scale it. And so those are the three powers. There are brands out there that do this extremely well. I mean, I will name a few. I mean, BMW is a great brand. They are almost the masters when it comes to sort of building iconic franchises, the 3 Series, the 5 Series, the 7 Series. They're doing it now with the i-Series. And um, another brand that does it very well, obviously, is Apple. Everyone probably talks a lot about that. Um, but also uh, Nike. So those are three brands I've seen do it extremely well in terms of sort of following those three principles. Okay. Um I like Nikes, but we're an Adidas family in my house. <laughs> Adidas is another, uh, I think, another company that has actually done it very well, so especially recently um, in terms of bringing out an old classic yeah. that's very iconic and keeping it relevant. Mm -hmm. So your, your new book is about unlocking the latent value in things that um, have been around for a while. Uh, there's a lot of underpriced brand equity out there um brands that are not living up to their historic or even present potential um but some things are undervalued for a reason um they might not actually have that equity if people are prospecting for some great untapped value how do they find it and how do they know that it's not just fool's gold <laughs> fool's gold love that um you know I think if you already have a portfolio of brands, let's start with that versus let's say you're trying to create something brand new. I think the first and foremost is look at the ones that have been successful in the past for you, you know, uh, go where you already have some strengths and kind of take a look at, have you kind of neglected those? And most companies that I've spoken with um, that have a portfolio of brands tend to uh, have most of their staff, most of their energy, most of their strategic discussions around all the shiny objects mm -hmm. and all the heritage, call them heritage, and that's such, it seems like such a negative connotation, okay, but all the, let's say, the, the mama brands, the, 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 the cash cows, um, quite frankly, they don't get the same amount of energy or attention. I sometimes ask people very simply, do you know how much money your heritage brands actually make for you? So I won't name the company, but there was this one company, and they had 6,000 SKUs, mm -hmm. 6,000 franchises. And what I did is I did a simple analysis, and I looked at, okay, their top 14 that were iconic. Of the 6,000, 14, what did those 14 deliver in terms of revenue and profit? Can you guess? Out of 6,000. More than half? No, not half. Okay, so <laughs> probably the wrong setup. Okay, but 11% of the revenue and 14% of the profit. Again, 14 out of 6,000 SKUs, right? Yeah. Um, and I asked a very simple question. Do you even dedicate 1% of your resources against these 14? And the answer is no. Even 0.1%, no. 
Do you have a dedicated staff against them? No. Do you have a business plan for each one of these 14 franchises that sort of contemplates how you might grow them 10% a year? No. Do you have an investment program that allows you to invest so that five years from now you're still seeing growth from this franchise? No. Do you have product lifecycle management and um, other resources dedicated to making this franchise grow? The answers were always no. And this is true for many, many clients that I work with. And so it's this sort of this untapped value is actually in how you could actually recharge and refocus on what you're already good at, what you're already strong at. So I would say that's sort of, I mean, that's sort of the lowest hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. On top of that, um, I look across the other parts of your portfolio and look at franchises that are selling well, okay? Um, Selling well is not the only criteria to become iconic. It helps, okay? And then within those that are selling well, which one of them actually have a certain degree of distinction versus the competition? Something that makes them unique and stand out. And if there's one that's selling fairly well, it's getting traction, and it's fairly unique, is that an opportunity to invest behind it to make it iconic? And so that's sort of the second place I'd look at. I think the third um, is I would actually, I love, I love your question because it's, to me it's about a portfolio management point mm-hmm. of view. Um, on the flip side, I would actually look at those, uh, those products that don't have any iconic elements and think really hard about what's the longevity of those, those, uh, those, those uh, products and whether or not you actually want to wean them. Yeah. I'd actually take a sort of an iconic potential uh, against your entire portfolio to figure out which ones you actually not only want to keep and invest, sort of this weed feed seed, but the ones you kind of want to weed. Yeah. Lastly, I would th- look at things that you're working on brand new and think, and think really hard about are there ways to build greater noticing power staying power and scaling power. We can talk about how to do those three things, but I would look at uh, for your new products and for your new businesses, how you might sort of infuse those from the beginning so that they actually have a higher probability of becoming iconic in the future. I think the way that you characterize this as a portfolio level initiative is is super helpful Um, because it reminded me um, as I was looking at, at your writings of investments in, in stocks and bonds. And uh, I'm intrigued by what seems like a, a contrarian or a value investor approach. Um, you just mentioned that people get distracted or are chasing the shiny objects. And this is this is not about chasing the new. This is about innovating the old, as you say. Mm-hmm. Um, do clients over-index on um, stuff that they think is supposed to be disruptive innovation and neglect you know, kind of a more conservative or value-based approach to value. You know, it. I, I want to sort of, I, I think the, the simple answer is yes, I think shiny objects tend to have more sex appeal, mm-hmm. okay, for, for everybody, okay? I mean, everyone, whether you're a designer, you kind of say, look, do I want to work on version 4.3.1? It's been out there for 30 years, really boring. You know, I met with the folks at Adobe and some of their challenges, they've got some just amazing iconic franchises, but they've got a lot of new stuff too. And, you know, as a, a designer, you're thinking, I want to sort of expand my my, my own portfolio and I want to spread my wings and if I have to work on the old stuff, well, that's not as exciting. So I think the simple answer is yes. Um, but what I'm not recommending is that this is actually, it may seem like a conservative approach. It actually isn't. What I'm actually proposing is a refocus against something and actually taking a very disruptive approach. So let me sort of explain both why I'm saying that and then what I actually mean. Um, let's... Take Porter's model, okay? Porter's model, 
for the most part, when he talks about gen- generic strategies, he says there's sort of two approaches you can take. One is become the cost leader, and the other is go heavy into differentiation. A lot of businesses, and I've worked for a few of them, when it comes to sort of this idea of cost leadership, they're getting disrupted on the bottom end. There are new competitors coming out there, and I worked in the apparel industry, that are basically making the same product for half the price and doing it in one-tenth the time. So it's not just that we're being out cost innovated, we're being out business model innovated in the lower end. On top of that, oh, you're talking about differentiation? You and I know there's so much differentiation out there, and it's not even about product differentiation anymore. It's about actually how how to redefine value. Okay, what do consumers really care about? It's the ecosystem of delivery. It's it's all these new business models using all the new technologies and all the new distribution mechanisms out there and all the ways of connecting people that are, that are basically throwing product differentiation out the window. It's 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 business model differentiation on the high end. And so as a call it a a, a company that's been around for a while, you're kind of getting attacked from both ends, you know, you know, you're basically outflanked, whether it be uh, cost leadership or differentiation. So what do you do? And you bring in a lot of expensive consultants, which I'm sure you guys aren't, right? (laughs) (laughs) But you bring in a lot of expensive consultants and the general sort of ethos or the general uh, thought is, oh, you need to uh, get on that next S curve. You need to you know, basically innovate or die and, and, and find that game changer. So that, that's always the pressure. And therefore, not only is just the inherent nature of shiny objects sexy because they're shiny, right? But there's also this business imperative that we're being told by these fairly smart consultants that you basically need to find that game changer to get on that next S-curve. Well, when I looked at these great companies, they actually took a different approach, they didn't go and necessarily chase just after shiny objects. And I'm not saying that they didn't. Okay, of course they did. But they probably doubled down on where they already had strengths. They actually innovated, like you were saying, in their old, but in, their, in, in the places they actually had strengths. But they innovated in a way that I don't think most people um, would characterize as conservative. They innovated in a way where they actually disrupted the existing business. Um, they went from owning an iconic element, an iconic feature, or whatever it might be, and thinking broader and thinking about, hmm, what's the iconic benefit that we actually deliver in this category? And let's go ahead and cannibalize ourselves and continually put ourselves out of business by owning the benefit. If anyone's going to own the benefit, and if it means that our cash cow is going to you know, basically get milked away and die, that's okay. So that's the type of innovation I'm talking about. It's disruption against your iconic benefit that you own in the category. But better you to do it and better you to own it than obviously some new entrant. But it is fairly disruptive to actually think about innovating the old. We have, as you were saying, um, often been brought in to help uh, companies do business model innovation coupled with design innovation. Um, As you may know, we worked with Audi On Demand uh, on a project to help them define what their brand feels like, uh, not as a product, but as a service. Um, This is a big translation of iconic value. They have an enormous amount of iconic value based in product design and engineering. Um, We were trying to move them into an entirely new set of design traits based in experience. Um, What do companies struggle with when they're trying to translate relevance in one space into distinctiveness in a new space? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think, uh, you know... 
the one thing that uh, most companies struggle with is the ability to reframe. Okay, so what's got them to one place and has made them successful getting to that one place, that's their winning hand, and that's the way they do it. And so for Audi, it might have been you know we've got beautiful um, aesthetics. Okay. Uh, great functionality in terms of how the aesthetics marries with the interior of the car and in terms of how it drives and, you know, and, and power and, and it might be, you know, handling all these sort of so-called uh, feature elements within most automotive uh, companies. And Audi's probably done a way above average um, job in terms of delivering those qualities. Um, and that's made them iconic um, I especially think their design and then the way they perform those two combined actually you know you know the TT and and, and you know they're very unique and and, and so um, what's what's the one that I really like it's very expensive it's like, the R8 yes the R8 <laughs> yeah, that, that, the first time that came out every, I think every guy goes that's the car I want yeah. right okay um, and but those are fairly performance driven fairly aesthetic driven and fairly feature rich okay and your question is sort of how did you get them to become or how did you, you know, how how might you expand them beyond sort of just the, the features into other areas? Into experiential yes, elements. Yeah. Yes, yes, Well, again, it's about reframing. If you think about the features of aesthetics or the features of performance, how does it make you feel? Okay? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just what they do, but really, you know, it's, it's not the KPIs of, you know, how many horsepower or, or you know. It, it's actually how do they make you feel? To me, feelings about experiencing, right? And so, if you can capture the essence of what an Audi makes you feel, then then you can de- design an entire experiential system focused on delivering that feeling throughout the sort of experience journey that consumers have with the product. You know, one of the companies I have a lot of respect for is BMW. Uh, they focus. They, they understand that there's probably 2,000 moments from when you are actually considering buying a car to when you research it to when you actually buy it to when you own it and service it to when you basically either donate or sell it, okay? But they've narrowed it down and understand that there's probably only 20 moments that really matter. And so what they do is they focus on those 20 moments and create real meaningful experiences around them that are consistent with their brand DNA. So it's not just about, you know, the look and feel of the car or how it, uh, the, the performance features, but it's about the consistency of that experience um, throughout the entire life cycle of the journey. That sounds absolutely true to our experience. Um, on a lot of projects, we've, we've helped clients reframe from a product orientation to a service orientation. And I totally agree with you. It's about feeling. Um, my shorthand for that in the car space is the car can live in your driveway, but the experience lives in your memory. And we remember uh, in a really tight coupling with our how we feel. Absolutely. Um, so talking more broadly about products and services um, and iconic advantage, I think services... Um, make a more subtle and holistic impression. Products can have a, a, a eye-grabbing pop to them. Services, I think, are um, maybe a little harder to be uh, iconic. Uh, they want to be subtle in some ways. If, if a hotel has a signature scent, they don't want you to notice it. Um, they want you to feel it, but not necessarily go, oh, it's that smell again. Um, how do you think about iconicity in services as opposed to products? Yeah. Um- I, I think the reason why it may seem more difficult to make iconic is I think the palette 
uh, of options or your menu of options are very broad in terms of you know what you want to touch on. You one, you have five senses, mm-hmm. and then if you within those five senses want to identify a certain emotion that you want to own. I don't know what the number of emotions are, but you marry five senses with the number of emotions and you guys can do the math. It's quite a lot on top of the delivery mechanism because an experience isn't just a feature. An experience oftentimes has a start, a stop. It may actually never have any start or may never have any end. Uh, So it actually might be something that, as you say, sort of lives on and then gets reinforced. So because of the breadth and depth of options to create an experience, Sometimes it feels a bit daunting for people to say, well, how do I create iconicity out of that? It's absolutely possible. What you need to do is just narrow in on, let's focus on maybe one sensory, maybe two. And then within that, let's, um, let's uh, create one overarching emotional benefit. Um, and then make sure that experience speaks that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an example, because otherwise it just feels super sort of theoretical, right? Yeah. Um, Amazon's a great example to me. You know, yes, Amazon does sell products, and and but again, what Amazon is is really a service. Okay, and I think they first started off, and their big, uh, I think their big reason to be was uh, initially having you know the cheapest books and the, uh, the highest availability of books that you could find ever. You know, better than any bookstore, and then obviously expanded the product line beyond beyond that, and okay, it, it became the cheapest of whatever you almost almost anything you ever wanted to buy. Okay. Well, that's sort of how they started, but I don't believe that's where they're going, okay? And I'm and pretty sure they're not. No, there's no way that's where they're going to go. Because let's face it, if you really want to find something cheaper, you know, plus or minus a few percent, you could probably find things that are cheaper than Amazon. Now, Amazon's fairly close, but that's not what they're best known for as being the cheapest. Availability, eBay has a lot of stuff that Amazon doesn't carry, and Alibaba does too, and, you know... Um, Amazon carries 98% of what you'd ever want, but it doesn't have the best availability either. What they really want to own is the idea of one click. Okay, And when you think about one click, that is a real experience. Initially, it was sort of a very uh, visceral experience where you just clicked on something and then boom, it was, uh, you know, you, you, you basically, it was, you ordered it and it was sent to you. And that was, that, that was, that was its initial manifestation. But again, as we talked about, what's the benefit of one click? And that's what they really wanted to own. So they could care less if one click went away. In fact, I don't think they even mm-hmm. think much about one click anymore. What has gone since one click and the benefit that they're trying to own is now you can get instantaneous. I think they started off with music and books and then uh, videos. They even went to the physical world where you could have a dash button and you could order you know, your favorite beer, your favorite chips, your favorite toilet paper, whatever that might be, you know, at the point of need. So it could be at the toilet, it could be at the washing machine, it could be at the fridge. Um, and they've gone beyond that to having physical presence and stores where you can buy groceries that are basically delivered the same day um, to the point where they basically don't even need to be a website anymore. You can just get your Alexis and, or Alexa or whatever and, and just, um, yeah. you know, you don't need to even go on the website anymore. And, and, and so... Um, my prediction is someday they're going to basically have an IoT device embedded in something, whether it be our clothes or glasses or even in our brains, okay? And before we even know we want it, it will show up, okay? Yeah. Their, whole, their whole thing has been uh, minimizing the gap between I want it, I get it. And I think the benefit they, that they're really going to own is no patience required. Yeah, they've done an amazing job between 
Prime and Alexa, I would say, are their two biggest breakthroughs in um, harvesting people's intent. Um, I want that. They, they've done a great job of becoming the choice of first resort, almost automatic and unthinking. Uh-huh. I agree. Okay, so I wanted to give you one more example of somebody that took a product feature that they had and turned it into much more of an experiential feature. So here's a motto of an organization, and their motto is build girls of courage, confidence, and character who actually make the world a better place. And again, this is for girls 8 to 12 years old. Can you think of what that organization is? That sounds like the Girl Scouts. You got it. Exactly right. So it's the Girl Scouts. And if you think about what's their one signature product that every year, everybody... Cookies. Yes. It's Mental all about the Samoas. Right, right. <laughs> so that is their, what I consider their signature element that creates noticing power and staying power for them, right? It makes them highly relevant and it makes them very interactive. But they decided to innovate against this uh, feature or this uh, signature element. And they created something called the digital cookie. Have, have you heard about the digital cookie? No. no. So the digital cookie is basically... Again, fits in with their mission of, you know, building girls of courage, confidence, and character. And part of that mission is to help young women um, get better and have more opportunities in STEM, right? Science, technology, engineering, and math. So they wanted to take the focus of having more and more uh, women get into the STEM field and marry this up with their signature feature. So they created something called the digital cookie. And what the digital cookie is, it's a online program that allows young girls to get in there and basically customize their own e-commerce website. And that will basically include things with their own pictures. It will be very much um, in their persona and their character. And I, and, and I know the audience can't see the pictures that, you're t- that I'm showing you right now, but you can see I'm showing you three different websites. They all look very different. Okay. Yep. Um, there, there's a definitely, I think, uh, iconic language with them, but you can see they have different pictures of the uh, people that are selling them, and they can design the e-commerce experience um, the way they want to. Um, so what does it do? It teaches young girls um, how to um, build websites. Mm-hmm. It teaches them about e-commerce. It teaches them to be available 24-7 and to be able to, run to, uh, to respond to customer service needs and to do emails. And so... It's really expanding the idea of the cookie, yeah. right, into a much deeper experience that's also very congruent with their mission. Yeah, and the girls are front and center. Um, it's building confidence because they are um, owning it. All right, and you see, they're creating the next wave of future web developers and entrepreneurs right here yeah. and there. So we're um, talking right now at a design company. We're at Design Continuum. I'm an experienced designer. Uh, you've spent uh, some time at Bain, and we've talked about Porter's model. We've talked about reframing, which I think of as a core design thinking framework. The work we do kind of spans design and management consulting uh, models. What do designers get right that management consultants don't? <laughs> a loaded question. <laughs> yeah, uh, luckily, my home field advantage. <laughs> so let's first start off with this common ground and why I think the word consultant probably applies to both. Yes. Um, I think most consulting firms are probably in the business of um, delivering solutions. Okay. So the client has a problem and I think they look to consultants. I've I've been on the obviously the client side and um, I'm looking for a solution. It's not just I'm looking for great counsel and advice, which also I am, but at the end of the day, there's usually some itch I need scratched. And and so um, 
And I actually think a lot of the management consulting firms are now trying to adopt design thinking principles, whether it be strictly the big five management consulting firms or whether it be even firms like IBM that are really trying to find technology solutions, right, to technology challenges. And um, I do think it's an interesting question. What is it that uh, design consulting firms have that maybe management consulting firms don't? I actually think it goes to, sure, there is the process, but I think uh, a lot of the management consulting firms are trying to adopt the process of design thinking, you know, being user-centric and trying to get empathy, having uh, the ability to prototype and test, and then making sure that there are diverse points of views in the room. I think where design consultancy firms definitely have a leg up is in the DNA of the people they hire. I've worked in these large management consulting firms. And I will say this, you hire a bunch of type A people that have been very successful all their life, um, that are extremely performance driven, that speaks to sort of their motivation, okay? Whereas most designers, the ones I've met like at Parsons, the ones I've met, you know, in in the design firms, uh, and the ones when we did the benchmarking of the 50 companies are a bit of a different animal, meaning, purpose are more fundamental drivers of motivation. Making an impact on the world um, is much more important than getting promoted or making more money. And I do think working with a group of folks that have much more of that mindset, you're going to get a little more heart, a little more, truthfully, a little more focus on the user centricity, Um, (coughs) probably deeper skills and empathy. But I also say this to the design consulting firms, which I know all of them and I've used most of them. That is, there are some, probably some things you could learn from the management consulting firms. In other words, I would actually have a couple of management consulting mindset folks work with uh, the designers here. Because at times, when, when you strive for such deep meaning and such deep impact, um, sometimes you, you, you miss the ability to commercialize and you miss the idea of viability. I think the design community can oftentimes focus on desirability and oftentimes actually really good at solving feasibility because of the prototyping and testing. Yeah. But when it comes to the viability model, most of the big innovation, innovation consulting firms, in other words, taking it to that last mile, aren't as strong. I know that's something you guys pride yourselves on, but even then I challenge you guys that you could be better. And so... Um, I do think that's probably one area, um, again, that, you know, having people that are actually in that mindset that are living it um, would be also part of the design thinking mindset of having uh, diverse points of view. Yeah, I would, ag- I would agree with that. I think it, it goes right down to the DNA that you're talking about. Um, designers, I think, have a way of um, personalizing their work, putting a lot of heart into it, and a rigorous process that leads to really well-cultivated judgment and the ability to trust your instincts rather than look for an answer in data. Um, but I do agree with you that um, thinking about the business model just doesn't tug at the heart for most designers. Right. It's a complementary skill. I think we make each other better in, in diverse teams. I think it brings up another interesting question. You know, What's the success been of, I think, uh, large consulting firms in absorbing other uh, design consulting, consultancy firms? I had a conversation with your founder, uh, Jean Franco, and it was, uh, you know, I think we both uh, sort of came to the realization it's difficult because you're trying to not um, 
bring together skill sets. I think what's most difficult is you're trying to bring together different people that have that sort of culturally are, are different. Yeah. And how do you marry those two up? I, th- I still think it's an experimentation that is uh, uh, still being played out. Yeah, it's happening in the market right now, and it's not clear whether the, the patient will reject the organ or the organ will reject the patient, or it'll work. Right. <laughs> Tune back in later. Need a blood transfusion. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have one last question for you. Um, we've been talking about uh, becoming iconic brands, how you do that. Um, maybe we skip the most fundamental question, which is why? Mm-hmm. What's, the, what's the benefit of focusing in this direction? So I'm going to answer sort of on two levels. On the first level um, is sort of what's the business reason you might do that? Simple answer is um, becoming iconic allows you to reach the highest form of branding there is. I mean, I think about different levels of branding. There's sort of visual branding. There's functional branding. There's uh, uh, emotional branding. But iconic branding goes to even a, a higher order place for me. It goes beyond what you can see or what you can touch or even what you feel. It goes to what you believe. And when you get into the belief system and you own it, you are given so much more credit for being trustworthy, for being relevant to me, and for being meaningful to me. And therefore, when you are at that degree of relevance and meaning, um, you're going to be in higher demand, and you're going to be able to charge a higher premium. And um, my great, great friend, Bob Shearer, who's the CFO of VF, used to hammer at me the idea of total shareholder return. And one of the biggest sort of um, um, components to drive total shareholder return is gross margin. And by almost all the iconic franchises always have the highest gross margin in the industry because they're the most recognized for something distinctive that's relevant. And therefore, people are much more willing to line up and pay for that than any other non-iconic product in the same category. So from a business point of view, smartest thing to do. The other thing is, um, if you really drive iconicity and you focus on your iconic franchises, you're actually going to be more profitable. Because, one, you are selling something that consumers already understand, they already love, all right? So you don't need this. The, the, the selling effort, the marketing effort per consumer is very little compared to brand new products. You know, imagine how much you have to educate people on new products. And your, your best bit. customers become salespeople, in effect, right? And the testimonials. And they, you wearing that Adidas basically is a, is a billboard for Adidas. You're one of their advertisers, right? And, and then you bring it up in this podcast. They just got how many more extra impressions <laughs> for free? You know, they, they should be, you should Send be sending them shoes. a bill, right? <laughs> they should be sending you a bill right now. Pay me exactly. And so it's this idea that... Um, um, the finance team loves focusing on iconic franchises. Yeah. The more you invest on them, the more you grow them, the more profit it's going to be versus the new shiny objects, right? The other big fans of iconic franchises and iconic franchise management is supply chain. Why? Because, look, they've already got all the fixed costs, the die for that shoe, the production lines. They've got all the vendor relationships already negotiated. And if you figure out a way to pump up more volume on that, that means their cost per unit goes down. So, you know, the entire organization actually financially um, benefits. And strategically, it makes the more, most sense in the world because you continue to create differentiation between you and your competition. And you cre- continue to create, like you said, people who are basically loyal at broadcasting and testimonials for your product. Um, but here, here's honestly the real reason that you want to focus on iconicity. You poured me a Coke. 
And if you ever met my seven-year-old son, Brendan, he would basically say, you know, he'll say this. He said, my dad's really goofy and he drinks way too much Coke. <laughs> and, 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 you know, he's absolutely right. And here's why. Um, I know the critics will say it is very expensive colored sugar water. Technically, they're not wrong. Oh, carbonated. Forgot to bring that part. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. And technically, they are not wrong. But anyone that sort of just stays in that realm and only believes that, they'll never get the idea of iconicity. For me, the value of being able to have to travel every place and any place and or even like this this podcast which is really early for me because i'm in california time right and, and and know that i can actually pick up a bottle of comfort food mm -hmm. okay that will make me feel refreshed make me feel sort of uh, like myself again and more importantly the fact that no matter no matter where i'm in no matter where i'm at in this world i could actually share one of these bottles with somebody and have a shared experience. That to me is invaluable. You see, for, for me, Coke is something just like my good friends, uh, I don't want to be on the fence on. So when you have a brand you love, like your Adidas, you don't want to sit on the fence on that. You want to be all in. And I, I would say this to your listeners that are responsible for iconic franchises. Your role is to make sure that your consumers are all in for your products because that's what consumers want to be. They don't want to fall out of love with brands they love. They want to stay in love. Cheers. I'll drink to that. Cheers. Thank you soon. You bet. The Resonance Test Podcast is where we seek out people who are consistently able to go from inspiration and cool ideas to fully implementing them. Innovation in this form can be found in all sorts of fields, from health and tech to food and the workplace. And we love hearing how different people go about doing this repeatedly. Continuum is a global innovation design consultancy with studios in Boston, Milan, Seoul, and Shanghai. At Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, it's not really innovative until it exists. If you want to learn more about Continuum and the work we do, go to continuuminnovation.com. Thanks to Soon and to Toby for their great conversation today. Numerous thanks to Kip, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. Multiple appreciations to Ken Gordon, our producer, for all of his masterminding behind the scenes. And to our listeners, we thank you for your ears. Mm -hmm.